Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. I'm here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham. Uh, and today we are continuing our study in the London Baptist, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, i got to get that right, Sean. I always <laughs> want to refer to the first one inadvertently. This is the uh-huh. Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we will be um, continuing. We're about in the middle of the book now. We will be continuing that today. Uh, just a reminder that we are on YouTube, so please subscribe to our channel, The Particular Baptist, uh, to get the latest videos um, from our podcast. And with that, I will turn over to Sean to introduce our topic today. Yeah, so today we're going to be going over uh, chapter 19, which is of the law of God. And especially in contemporary culture, the law of God, um, or contemporary, for evangelical culture, I should say, the law of God is not looked very highly upon. Uh, so we want to bring this out and emphasize why it is important for Christians to know the law of God, uh, not for justification's sake, obviously, but there's other benefits to knowing the law, and that'll be clear as we uh, go through this. Yep, that is right. Yeah, the the law of God is absolutely important. I mean, if we don't know what the law of God is, we're not going to know what sin is. Yes, um, and we're exactly. going to talk, talk about that later as well. Um, so with that, we will go ahead and dive into the chapter. It's chapter 19 of the law of God, and we'll read paragraphs 1 and 2. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart, in a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, excuse me, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, written in two tablets, the four, the four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. So here we see um, in paragraph one, the laying out of what the covenant of works is. The covenant of works is the covenant that God made with Adam before the fall, essentially saying that if you obey me, you will receive blessing. If you disobey me, you will receive curse. In this case, it would be physical and spiritual death. And there would essentially be eternal life if, if Adam obeyed God's law perfectly. Um, so there was, uh, there was no concept of sin before this. Um, Adam was perfect. He was created perfectly with the perfect ability and freedom to obey God's law or to not obey God's law. Um, so that's really what the covenant of works is here. Um, so he would be promised life and fulfilling a threatened death upon the breach of it. Um, and that is really the introduction of God's precepts in the scriptures early on in the book of Genesis. Yeah. A lot of people have issues with the idea that Adam was underneath a covenant of works because nowhere in the Bible does it explicitly say the phrase Adam was in a covenant of works or anything equivalent to that. But you do have the obvious promise of God that if you eat of the tree of uh, good and evil, you will you will surely die. And so that's, that's an aspect of the covenant. We also know that Adam didn't have eternal life in of his, of his own at that point. Uh, in Genesis 3, 
when uh, the curse is being pronounced, uh, God says in verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Um, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So Adam didn't have life in of himself yet. And we know from other places in the Bible that life is promised for keeping the law. For example, if one were actually able to keep the Mosaic law perfectly, they would have uh, eternal life, as Paul brings out in uh, where is it? Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. The point being when he quotes from Deuteronomy there is, I believe it's Deuteronomy, um, that if somebody were actually able to keep the law, they would be able to live by it. Um, But as we all know, we all fail constantly. So, we're not able to achieve that righteousness, but Adam did have a law. And as we'll, we'll talk about, he also had the law written on his heart and he wasn't able to keep it. Right. Yeah. It's almost as if there, uh, there is a sense where there's a theoretical ability Mm -hmm. uh, to gain eternal life through the law. Like if you, if we were perfect and we did not have our sinful nature, we would be able to keep God's law perfectly and see him because uh, we would be, we would be perfect. We would be righteous. We would meet God's standard perfectly and be able to see him without being killed for our Mm -hmm. sin. Uh, But because of our sinful nature, we can't, our wills are bound to sin. We do that continuously. What is evil apart from God, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, that, that's a very, uh, it's a very good point. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I I did want to highlight is that, the law is written on people's hearts and not just the law in general, because people might be confused by that phraseology because sometimes the law is used to refer to the entirety of the old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, which we're not, we're obviously not saying that's written on people's hearts, but uh, that basically the 10 commandments, that specific summation of the moral law is. And we get that from uh, Romans chapter two, um, starting at verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So Gentiles who didn't have the written law in front of them knew what the law was, their conscience bearing witness to them. Now, the the question, of course, is what law is Paul talking about here? He goes on a little bit later, still using the same word law. Uh, Let's see, starting in verse 21 of that same chapter. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? 
So what law is he talking about? That's three of the Ten Commandments right there. It's uh, stealing, adultery, and then idolatry. Uh, so you've even got one from each table of the law there. So mankind has a general knowledge of what God requires of them. They might try to suppress it because they want to continue in their sin, but they do have a general sense of the moral law. It's written on their hearts. Yeah, that's exactly right. There is this, and we see this, I think, most explicitly in Romans 1, where you see this knowledge of who God is. And, and Paul doesn't just say that it's a knowledge of God. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. I have Romans 1. Um, it's near the end of the chapter. Oh, 32. Verse 32, it says, Though they knew God's decree and those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So they know that God exists. They also know what God requires of them, and they're continuing to suppress that truth. Um, so, yeah, we, we see God's law being written on the hearts of Gentiles. And what Paul is wanting to communicate here, he's talking to Jews in chapter 2. He's like, you, you know, you guys have the law of God given to you through direct revelation. Yes, Gentiles are not off the hook, but you guys should know better. You, you have the law. Um, and then in chapter 3, he goes on to put Jews and Gentiles in the same boat that they're all under sin, all under the law. Uh, they're, you know, Jews are not better than the Gentiles because they have the law given to them necessarily. They're all in the same boat, um, spiritually speaking. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And that looping back to Adam for a second, that's what made Adam's sin so bad. It's not merely that it was eating of the tree because if he partook of the tree, but truly didn't know that it wasn't, it was wrong to disobey God then you could say in a sense that he, he uh, wasn't morally, morally obliged to have followed it. But the law was written even on Adam's heart. So he knew he was supposed to have no other God before God and listen to God, but he mm -hmm. broke it and ate of the tree. So he, he essentially broke the moral law, whether or not we, we see that explicitly in Genesis 3 or not. Right. Yeah, the moral law existed uh, even before it was given to Moses in the tablets of stone. Yeah, because of it being written on the hearts of men. And we know um, that the law is what reveals sin to um, us. And we're going to talk about this in paragraphs five and six. The law is what actually reveals sin to unbelievers and even to Christians while we still struggle with sin. So how in the world could could Adam have known what sin was without the law in the first place? It had to exactly. be there in some way, shape, or form for him to be able to even know what sin was. Yeah, to know that it was wrong to disobey God. Yeah. Right. Yep. And this even goes back to how, you know, there's a question, I think, in the evangelical world that how do we hold people who have never heard the gospel accountable for sin? Yes. Well, we. this is one of the primary reasons. They know God. Uh, because he's revealed himself in creation, but they know in their hearts and their conscience that uh, he requires something of them and they suppress it. And he holds them accountable for that. Exactly. So we can't say that the, the tribe in the jungle who's never heard of Christ is going to be let off because they've never heard Christ. Uh, they are culpable because they suppress the truth and their idolatry or whatever it is they do. Exactly. All right. right. Paragraphs three and four. You want to read us those? Yeah, I will do that. Paragraph three. Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, 
prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who was furnished with power from the Father for that end abrogated and taken away. And then paragraph four, to them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So here we're starting to look at what's commonly called the threefold division of the law, that being moral, ceremonial, and judicial. I know there's lots of people uh, within evangelicalism that wouldn't necessarily recognize that division because, once again, there's nowhere in the Bible that explicitly says, oh, this is moral law or, oh, this is judicial law. So they have a problem seeing it that way. But when you look at how the New Testament treats the various types of laws, it obviously treats them very differently. Moral laws are still to be, in a, in a sense, obviously not for justification's sake, but in a sense still binding on the Christian, whereas ceremonial laws like circumcision are thrown away. If you don't recognize that there's a division in the law and how each category applies to us, you're going to end up being very confused when you read the uh, New Testament. Right. Well, that's really, I think, where this messianic Judaism comes into play. There's this lack of distinction. You know, let, let, we're still going to keep the New Testament elements, but we want to still drag the entire law along with all its uh, various precepts with us that are not really applicable to us today. And so you, you create a grave error, and it can even lead to heresy if you're not careful. Yeah, it can even it, distort the gospel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we see the, the ceremonial law completely being eradicated. Um, if we look at Hebrews chapter 9 real quick. Oh, and by the way, what version... Um, of the confession are you reading mine said in paragraph four um by virtue of the institution their general equity only being of modern use you said moral use. oh yeah oh that's interesting actually um so i'm reading the one that's just off arbka's website i oh. do i'm i'm taking seminary classes and uh sam waldron the professor who was going over this actually mentioned that yes some of them read modern use and some of them read moral use and i forget if he gave an explanation of when that change was made but uh yeah so some of them will actually read that way interesting okay um, i didn't yeah. know that i mean i don't think it really changes the meaning of what's being conveyed um but th that's interesting i never picked up on that before all right, so if we go to Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about uh, redemption through Christ's blood, and he goes on to talk about the high priestly office that Christ has. And here in chapter 9, he's talking about the ending of the ceremonial law. Chapter 9, uh, verse 9. Um, actually, I'll start verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So we see here that those particular ceremonial laws and ceremonial rituals were used to point to something that was going to be fulfilled. 
mm-hmm. which would be Christ coming and dying on the cross. Uh, we see that symbolically in the Gospels when uh, Jesus, his death ripped the curtain in two. There was no more division between the people and, t- and the uh, high priest. Uh, Christ had fulfilled that. That was no longer needed. So we see that being completely eradicated. But we see this term here, general equity, being used uh, as it relates specifically to the judicial law. And what this refers to is that the principles laid out in the judicial law in Israel are still applicable to us today. That does not mean that the specific laws that were applicable judicially to Israel are applicable to us today, such as you know, the stoning of you know, children who disobey their parents or the stoning of homosexuals or things like that. Um, we would not say that that is applicable to us today as modern Christians or even in society. But we would say that the general principle of um, you know, homosexuality being evil as grounded in creation and, and as God ordained it to be marriage bet- be, to be between a man and a woman, vi- and, and that homosexuality violates God's created order, uh, we would say that it's sin on those grounds. And that doesn't change because, of the, uh, because it's grounded in creation. So those type of things we would see as being in general equity. Um, or, or in their specific laws of justice, you know, we have the general principles of justice, standing up for the oppressed, punishing those who do evil in society, who break laws, who wreak havoc, whatever it might be. Uh, those, the, those laws that applied and those principles that applied to Israel still apply to us today, but we would not say that those specific laws that Israel had to abide by um, apply to us today. And Walter talks about this in his commentary on the confession. This is page 94. He says, though the judicial law has expired yet as an inspired application of the moral law to the civil circumstances of Israel, it reveals many timeless principles of general equity, justice, goodness, and righteousness. As such, it remains relevant not only to modern states, uh, modem states, but also to uh, modem churches and Christians. I think that might be a typo, but I could be wrong. Hmm. Um, but yeah, his point is is that these principles still apply to us today. First um, Corinthians five one is probably a perfect example of this, where Paul is addressing a case of incest within the church at Corinth, and he is saying that this is wrong. You know, you should not be acting this way. Put this person out from among you, and that is grounded in Old Testament law. You know, a, a, a man is not to have his his wife or his uh, his mother. Um, and, and so that is grounded in Old Testament law. And because of that, that general principle still applied to the church today. It's grounded in creation. This is not how God had ordained uh, marriage to be. Uh, so there is to be this, uh, this general equity between those laws um, and the application in the church today. Do you take that to be the person's mo- mother in 1 Corinthians I'd always taken it to be basically the stepmother because it says his father's wife as opposed to his mother. So in my mind, it had meant that the father had. Taken oh, I always it. thought it was just the mother. I could be wrong. I'm going. I'm going there now. Give me a sec. Um, it's actually reported that there is sexual morality among you. What kind of not even tolerated among pagans? For a man has his father's wife. Um, I just always took that to be his mother. I didn't. I wouldn't have thought that'd be stepmother. Uh, but I'm looking at the note here in the Reformation Study Bible. It says the man's father may have died or the woman may have been a stepmother. In any case, the sexual relationship in view is incestuous. 
mm-hmm. being explicitly condemned in Leviticus 18.8. So again, we mm-hmm. see this principle grounded in uh, the, the judicial law of Israel. And, it, and it's funny, even even the pagans, the the Gentiles, didn't even tolerate this kind of behavior. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's like you're like an extra slap in the face. You're you're violating the law of God. But come on, even the pagans don't even think this is sinful. Yeah. That aside, thanks for pointing that out. I didn't. I did not realize that. Oh yeah, no problem. Yeah, another good example uh, that I like to go to in how the judicial law applies in a Christian context is. The law in regards to you have to have two or three witnesses in order for a, a charge to be established. In the context of the uh, Mosaic Covenant, uh, when somebody was accused of a crime in order to actually convict them, you needed at least two or three witnesses to do so, and then they would be put to death or whatever the particular punishment was for that crime. Uh, but in First uh, Timothy uh, first, or chapter 5, verse 19, Paul says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. So he's applying that same law in the context of the church now, which makes sense. At one point, the uh, law applied in the context of God's kingdom, that being Israel, God's people being Israel. And now it's being also applied in the the fulfillment, the true Israel of God, uh, the church. So the, the same law applies in a sense, or the same equity applies in a sense, even if the specifics are slightly different. Right, right. And an interesting note, um, kind of a historical note, in, in along these lines, um, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith are, read basically verbatim in this area, which, mean, which shows that there is a unity in, in this particular theological area as it relates to the law of God. Um, but I want to note in passing, what's interesting in the Westminster Confession, uh, they have certain, in the original Westminster Confession, before its American revision, they do note certain uh, aspects about how the civil government is to work. And they specifically say the civil government is, going, is supposed to impose uh, certain religious uh, laws to ensure that proper teaching is being done, blasphemies are punished and stopped, etc. Um, and it, there seems to be this graying of the lines between appro- an appropriate view of God's law and judicial law and how the civil government and judicial law is supposed to apply uh, in the modern world and society and how the civil government relates to the church in terms of imposing theological precepts upon uh pagan peoples or peoples in general. Uh, so I just say that in passing, it's an interesting historical note. Um, and I would say, in my opinion, is inconsistent um, from the Westminster Confession. Um, but yeah, just say that in passing. Interesting note. Um, do you want to move on or did you have anything else to say about that section? Nope, I'm ready to move on. All right. I will read our last two paragraphs that we're going to talk about. There is a paragraph seven, but we're not going to uh, talk about that today. So paragraph five, the moral law doth forever bind all as well justified persons as others to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in the respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it, neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. 
verse 6. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be therefore justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their hearts, or their natures, hearts, and lives. So as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions in that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the cursed and unallayed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil, because the law encourages the, to the one and deterreth from the other is no evidence of him being under the law and not under grace. So both these sections are really important because we're beginning to touch on justification again. How is a man right with God? Mm-hmm. And the framers of the confession are very, very careful to make sure that they're recognizing what the benefits of the law are without once again, placing us under a covenant of works where we have to keep the law in order to be justified, because obviously we can't all be condemned that way. Right. Yeah. It's really talking about the evidence of the law and that the law is still, even as it was our uh, schoolmaster, if you were goading us to Christ, it still goads us back to him and uh, Mm -hmm. shows us our remaining sin because we still have that fleshly nature that we have to fight daily, that old man that we continuously have to put to death. And so that law helps to keep us in line, even as Christians, because we tend to go astray, Mm -hmm. tend to go astray. Um, And and the necessity of obeying God, if we, if we say that we're Christians and we say that we love God, we better be obeying God. You know, we, we can't live consistently uh, as a Christian if we are not, keeping the commandments that God has given us and we should want to. And if we don't have a desire to, that is evidence that we're not saved. Exactly. So ensuring that we are obeying God's law is important to um, show that we are saved and to glorify the one that we have been saved. um, We have been saved for Romans six talks about this. I think pretty explicitly Uh, Romans six, one, what shall we say then? Are we, to continue to sin that grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So, you know, the, the question was here, if we have so much grace, you know, we're, we're sin abound or grace much more abounded, Paul said. And he anticipates the question. Okay. If grace is going to abound, can't we just keep sinning because God's going to keep giving us grace? Like, no, 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 no. If you've truly died to that sin and you truly have been freed from sin, and you've truly been saved, then how in the world can you say you're a Christian and continue to live in your sin? So it's absolutely uh, crucial that we do that. Yeah, that goes back to if God has saved you, and if God is the one who does the saving, is he not able to also bring you to holiness, if that's what his desire is? Right. Um, that's, so 
we as, as particular Baptists would recognize, no, God begins a process of sanctification. Not that he sanctifies us immediately, but it is his desire that we're sanctified. And because he's the one working in us, he's creating these things. So that's why we can say, oh, this person is a Christian, as, as far as we can tell, because he loves the Lord. Or we can say that person is not a Christian because he obviously doesn't love the Lord. God is not at work at him. I do really appreciate paragraph five when it says, uh, neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation, the obligation being uh, to try and keep the moral law. The reason being, it, it, it really attacks the root of basically easy believism or mm -hmm. how people in uh, mainstream evangelicalism see Lordship. the law. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not that we have an obligation to obey the law anyway, purely because God is God and he has the right to tell us what to do. On top of that, because Christ has been so merciful and generous towards us, it creates almost a second obligation. In fact, it is the second obligation uh, to keep the law because now we want to honor him. Whereas a lot of people seem to view the law as just, it's not necessarily like it, it's something that they don't have to keep. It's oppressive or whatnot. And this, this being the moral law I'm talking about, and that's not the right way to look at it at all. Uh, God is good. These things that God has commanded are good. So for us to be like, Oh, well, you know, whatever I'll, I, I, I'll keep it if I want to or not. It's like, no, this is, this is good. And if you love Christ, you should be trying to do what he said. And it's for your good anyway, for your benefit. So why would you not even want to do that? But, but, but Sean, we just unhitched the Old Testament. Come on. Oh, oh. Who, who, who cares? Yeah. That old stuff, the church doesn't need to worry about it. We just got the resurrection. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Jesus never unhitched the Old Testament. Uh, no, he did not. Did no, not he did not. Unhitch the Old Testament. No, Jesus he did not. <laughs> built many, many. Uh, teaching off what the old testament said um, yeah yep now that is unfortunately in evangelicalism today this idea that the law of god is not really that important jesus said in john 14 if you love me you will keep my commandments the love for god and obedience to his commandments are equivocated they are not separated you if you love god you will obey him you can't have one without the other exactly very it's very very important yeah, it, it makes no sense to say, I love God, but I don't desire to do his will. That's, that's contradictory. Right. And we, we even see this in the Old Testament. If you look at David in Psalm 119, verse 91 through 98, mm. David shows that he clearly loves God's law. There's no, he, he wants to obey God's law. And this is someone who lived in heinous sin for a time. And, you know, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David and Bathsheba, murdering, adultery, but he, the whole of his life overall was one of loving God's law, longing to obey God's law, uh, delighting in it, thinking about it constantly, putting it before him. This is the view of the Christian. This is what a Christian is to do. We're to have such a love for God's law that we are constantly dwelling on it. We're seeking to obey it, and we take joy in pleasing God through it. So it, it, if we forget that, we've thrown out what the Christian walk is, essentially. We've completely yeah. thrown that out. Um, and then, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, moving on to paragraph six. 
and its idea of we're not under the law as a, a covenant of works. If you don't find yourself loving the law or desiring to do that good, that is not the solution to that is not to be like, okay, I need to force myself to love the law or do the law so that I'm right with God. No, Mm -hmm. no, no, no. It's legalism. It's legalism. You will not be able to be right with God by your law keeping. It's, it's not possible. So what you, what the gospel is, is that uh, repent of your sins and believe on Christ. Repent being a change of mind, uh, recognizing Jesus is who he is and recognizing God is who he is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you will find that he works in you to grow in your love of his law and of him and your desire to do his will. But to look at it, oh, I don't, in myself, I don't desire to follow God. The, the solution to that is faith in Christ. It's not to, oh, I need to keep the law so that I'm right with God. No one will ever be right, made right with God in that way. That's absolutely right. And I think that's why they're so careful in paragraph six um, to talk about the, what they don't mean by it when they're saying that we obey the law as Christians. Trying to be very, we're not establishing a covenant of works. We're not establishing some way of salvation. This is just simply a way of refraining from evil. We're still under grace. We're not mm-hmm. under law in the sense that mm-hmm. we live under the law as a means of, of salvation. Mm-hmm. They're very careful to do that. And I think that's why, and I know we didn't put down paragraph seven, but I'll mention it anyways. I think this is why in paragraph seven, they emphasize that the gospel is consistent with the law in holy living in Christ. And I'll read it real quick. It says, neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it the spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully, which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. So they wanted to make very clear that just because we're saying to obey God, that does not take away from the uh, gospel, which leads men to resigning all their own works and believing in Christ by faith alone with nothing to bring, but the empty hands of faith, no works, nothing that they have. So they wanted to make sure that that was consistent with it. But it goes back to the mindset. If our minds are truly changed by the gospel and we see Christ for who he is and see that glorious work on the cross is truly being done for us, there will be a, a way of life that will flow from that mindset. Because what you believe will always lead to a certain set of actions every single mm-hmm. time. If you, believe a cert- if you believe wrong things about God, you're going to live wrong. It doesn't matter um, how, how you spin it. We see this in Hebrews, Hebrews 11. How did, the old, how did the Hall of Fame of Faith saints, how did they obey God? It says by faith. It says by faith, Abraham did this, and then he walked this way. By faith, he did this. By faith, she did this. So they live by faith in God, and their actions flowed from that faith in God in their obedience um, to him. And this truly does free us. Now does, yeah. we don't have to keep the law because we're working and we're trying to be right with God because we know the punishment coming otherwise. We can do good because it's good. And that's, that's really the only reason to do good anyway because it's inherently good, not because you're, getting, you're earning something out of it. If you're, earning, if you're doing it for selfish reasons, is it truly good? Right, right. It's yeah. re- we know that the the price has been paid and death on the cross. The law has been fulfilled already. It's been accredited to our account and we just live out of love for God. 
and we take joy in that. But, you know, you look at Roman Catholics or Muslims or any other pagan religion that does not uh, have some sort of uh, righteousness done for them on their behalf already where they can't keep it. Uh, they have to continuously live up to a standard that they can't keep, that they're not going to be able to keep. Uh, you know, the, the torment that must come from a lack of assurance of salvation, not being mm-hmm. able to keep that perfect mm-hmm. standard. I mean, we see Luther had this problem too. Mm-hmm. Before he was saved, he would see God as, he hated the God that was presented to him, this judgmental God that would throw him in hell for not being able to keep his law, really. You know, I can't keep this law. I know I'm a wretched man, but when he saw that faith was the means by which the righteousness came from God, that he didn't need to do anything. It was done for him already. That's where he found his joy and his peace. Mm -hmm. And that does go into one of the uses of the law that was mentioned that it's, it's a, uh, it's a mirror. It's a way of showing you just how sinful you are so that you will flee to the true solution. And that is Christ. And I, I can't say this enough. If you, if you don't think you're right with God, believe in Christ, recognize mm-hmm. who he Amen. is. That's an aspect of believing, believe in him and you will be saved. If you, if you see your sin for what it is that you do not measure measure up, believe in him and you will be saved. You will find him to be the perfect savior. Yep. Don't rest in yourself. If you rest in yourself, you will be frustrated because um, you, you cannot be perfect. You cannot be perfect. And any other religion that says that, uh, is going just going to continue to frustrate you if you can't live up to their standards, whatever that might be. Or you, or you'll downgrade the law of God. You'll, you'll have to say, "Oh yeah, but God doesn't really care about these sets of commandments right. that I'm not keeping." And from the from the New Testament, James chapter two makes that very clear that 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 is not the case. God' standard is perfect. He will mm-hmm. not. He will not be unjust and will not lower his standard of justice for us. The only way to be right with him is through his son. His son is taking the just penalty on our behalf. If you're in him, you are credited his righteousness. And that is how you can be right with God, not by your own righteousness. Amen. Amen. That's really, that's the gospel message right there uh, in a nutshell. Yep. Well, that's all we have for today. Um, Next week, we will, Lord willing, uh, be continuing our journey. We're almost done with our series on the confession. Um, next week we'll be going through chapter 24 which is of the civil magistrate and that actually ties into some of the things we've talked about today as it relates to god's law but lord willing we will talk about that in our next episode until then everybody have a great weekend and we will see you later see you